Hello, everybody. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with author Lex H. Jones. Lex, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for accepting the invitation to come and chat. No problem at all. I'm very grateful. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, in looking at your at your at your experience and all the books you've written, you have a, a wide variety of genres that you've written. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I tend to try and I don't really worry about pigeonholing myself with regard to genre. If I think of a story, then I'll just write it and then I'll worry about what genre it fits into when it becomes time to pitch it to publishers, basically, and then I'll find an appropriate one. Oh, wow. So what is that process like when you when you pitch it to a publisher and you have to choose a genre? Is that sometimes difficult to choose a genre when, when books now, they, they span over many genres? Yeah, it can be. Uh, what I tend to do is look at... Uh, publishers who when i find a publisher who i think might be interested in it i tend to look at what else they've published and and see if there's anything which is kind of in any way similar to what i've done in the sense of okay so they published that they might be interested in this because i don't want to waste anybody's time you know there's there's a there's a load of manuscripts arriving on everybody's desk every single day so even if yours is exactly the sort of thing they they published, they might not want it. So I certainly want to make sure it isn't, you know, if this is a publisher who absolutely never publishes horror, I don't want to be sending them a horror manuscript. So I will always kind of do my background research into the kind of thing that they publish before I start. Oh, wow. And is there a genre that you gravitate more towards than others? I think I tend to default to the horror as a rule, but, I've got four books out there that are solely my work, and then I'm also featured in a lot of sort of collected editions of work of short stories. Um, the four books that I've written, only two of well, one of them really is straight up horror. Uh, the other three aren't, but all the short stories I've done are, are horror. So uh, I think most people who who do know of me probably think of me as a horror author, but that's not actually accurate if you look at the entirety of what i've written but i, I do tend to navigate back towards horror as a rule i suppose hmm. and where did that uh where did that inspiration come from to that you gravitate towards horror was there some is it, do you just enjoy those types of stories or is it um the storytelling aspect or the the creatures or is there something specific about horror that you kind of gravitate towards a little bit more um, i've just always loved it really ever since childhood um i've always loved monsters and, and ghosts and like really traditional horror stuff to be honest is is sort of my wheelhouse like your, your graveyards and your haunted forests and swamps and castles and all that kind of thing uh, i was massively into it as a child that was always my my sort of go-to thing um, you know how when when you're a child you have different phases like you might be this year you might really be into the power rangers and then next year you might really be into transformers and then after that it's the ninja turtles but there's usually one thing that's always there no matter what else is being thrown at you in pop culture maybe it's baseball or it might be football or or cars or trucks or something well for me it was always like horror and monster stuff whatever other thing i was into in terms of pop culture i would always come back to ghosts and Frankenstein monster and Dracula and castles and all that kind of thing. Um, and my, my grandfather used to sort of indulge that and he used to tell me ghost stories, some of which he made up, some of which he'd sort of seen in films and he was sort of um, adapting them to, in such a way that they were, could be told orally to a child. Uh, and some of which he'd, he'd read the, 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 
m- one I remember the most that him telling me was the uh, uh, adaptation of the MR James ghost story, Whistle and I'll Come to You. Uh, and I used to ask him to tell me that over and over again. And that was like the first proper ghost story I remember hearing. Uh, and that just always stuck with me. And, and I actually have a tattoo representing both my grandfather and that story because of the significance of it to my love of horror. Um, and yeah, that's just something that's always stuck with me. The, the love of horror in terms of books, comics, toys, films, cartoons, everything. So w- w- when it came to start writing, came time to start writing my own stuff, it was kind of inevitable that that's, that's where I would gravitate towards for most of the ideas that I came up with. No, oh, okay. And I, I did read about um, your grandfather and him being a master storyteller and you mm. really, really being great at telling stories. But I read that you were, you struggled with being an oral storyteller. And I, yeah. I wondered how, how you made that transition from, uh, you know, struggling with to, with orally telling a story versus writing a story. What what was it about writing that that made it easier for you to tell a story? Well, um, essentially, I suppose the thing is with with me, I, I'm I'm autistic. I'm on the autism spectrum, and that one of the things that means for me is that um, orally, my I. I probably it's hard to explain really but i suppose i lack uh, one way to put it is i lack a lot of the software so to speak that a, a regular neurotypical person has and that can manifest in people thinking that my voice is perhaps monotone or that i don't put emphasis in enthusiasm and whatnot in the way i talk and and I, I've never been good at anything like drama or anything like that where you were required to do it in the school play or any anything like that because I just cannot my, my brain just doesn't work that way everything is very sort of monotone and on a level because that's just kind of how I am and to be a good oral story storyteller you, you you cannot have that restriction all the people who do it best are really great same as audiobook narrators really they can do character voices and and the, the voice speeds up for the exciting bits and the, and there's there's emphasis on emotion and all these things which I'm lacking in. But it, none of that matters when it comes to written words on a page because it's different. And, and what you take from it as a reader is what it, it comes from the words themselves rather than the way I'm saying them. So all of the kind of things which I struggle with and lack in terms of conversation and, and oratory stuff it, it, it's not a problem for me on paper it's a way completely around those those weaknesses that i have if you like oh i see that makes sense and i i had a conversation recently with uh, author joseph sale he's a, he's an author and he he was we were talking about how words are magic how you can convey yes. so much so many different types of emotions and feelings and you can do so much with words that words are, are in form of, of magic because you can do so much with them yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you really can. Yeah. And, uh, and re- you know, we've recently, we've, there's been a lot of discussion about genres and whether or not genres are a thing of the past because books do, or entertainment really, uh, that, you know, we, you can span many different genres with, with a movie or a book or even music. Uh, do you think genres are becoming a thing of the past? I think it's certainly something people worry about less. And I think that's a good thing. I think if we're moving past the point where someone thinks, oh, this is supposed to be a horror, so I'd better put more gore in it, or this is supposed to be a sci-fi, but so I'd better put a robot in it or something, or or just, just anything really broader than that where you're pigeonholing your book and try, or, or film or whatever it is, 
and try and forcing it to be a certain thing. If you just tell it as it is and don't worry about genre, I think that's much more freeing. And there's, there's certainly films and TV shows and stuff that you watch now where you think, I'm not quite sure what genre I would put this in. If I was trying to categorize it, you know, it, it's quite difficult, which is actually why if you look on streaming services, there's quite a few films and TV shows that come under multiple categories. If you search under horror, it's there, but it's also there under sci-fi, but it's also there under um, like, there might even be some that's under comedy as well. And, and, and I think that's a good thing. I think not worrying so much about, specifically trying to force something into a genre and, and just telling the story that you've got to tell or writing the song or whatever. I actually think that's better. I, I think that's going to lead to some much more interesting um, products and, and, and stories basically. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, most people that I've talked to, they say they, they feel like they have to put certain things in their books to, to pitch it to publishers because the yeah. publisher wants the publisher wants well i need to know what genre this fits in they need an idea of, of how to how they're going to market it and um is it does self-publishing is that helping change or make that transition to uh you know many different genres instead of just one it probably is yeah i mean i don't i haven't self-published any of my stuff so i'm not really an expert on that side of things but i think it does because it it kind of removes the gatekeeping in that way you haven't got somebody saying ex exactly what you just said. You haven't got someone saying, we can't publish this unless you put some more of this in it so then we can market it in a certain way because you release it and then you market it yourself. And I also think the the proliferation of self-publishing and uh, independent and smaller publishers and stuff is, is good for the literary world in gen general, really, because the literary world had previously been getting a bit like something of a monopoly a lot like entertainment industry is now to be honest in that it's increasingly heading towards the point where you've got about three companies who make everything mm -hmm. and and publishing industries kind of was getting like that before we suddenly got this massive of indie publishers and whatnot over the last decade or so where unless you were writing something that was going to be picked up by these four publishers you, you were you were never going to get your book out there yeah, which mm -hmm. which meant you, you, everyone was writing the same sort of things so that it would appeal to one of these four publishers. Whereas now that you know, which is how you know you got the Hunger Games, and then in the fight in the following three years, you got about fifteen trilogies of dystopian teenage fiction. You know, it's things like that. You know, we don't get that as much anymore because you don't have to try and pitch. You know, in the same way. Yeah, that's that's a great point about that, and. You know, but with horror specifically, I wonder, is do you, do you think horror as a genre is accessible to just a casual reader? Do you think some people think that horror is unaccessible or just not for them without really diving into it and giving it a shot? I think there probably is that perception. But I think the key thing there, which I would say to anyone who was thinking that, would be that horror is very, very multi-layered. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are genres of horror that I don't like. And I'm a horror writer. You know, it's not like, okay, it's horror, therefore it means this. It's like saying rock music, saying I don't like rock music. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean the Beatles and the Rolling Stones or do you mean Ghosts and Rob Zombie? What? What? There's so much variation that falls under the category of rock music. You can't just say, I don't like rock music. And similarly, you can't say, 
I don't like horror. Well, what type of horror are you talking about? Maybe you've only watched the Saw film. So, okay, you don't like that kind of gratuitous torture porn sort of violent human-based horror. That's fine. But have you tried watching a ghost film? Have you watched a vampire movie? Have you watched a werewolf movie? Have you watched a psychological horror like The Shining? Or, you know, it, it, there's so many different variations within it that it's, it's, you can't accurately say that you straight up don't like horror because it, it, it's the very inaccurate blanket statement to make. So if anyone was of that mindset and I was, I mean, I never try and push anyone towards anything, but if, if, if someone was saying to me, I don't think I like horror, but I want to give it a go, I would say, okay, why don't you think you like it? What have you watched or read that made you think that? And then I would recommend them something that was far away from those, that specific branch of horror that they've, um, they've consumed before. Yeah, you're right. It's, there's a wide, wide range of, especially horror, I think. And yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, um, you know, so when people read short stories, you know, they think a short story must be easy because it's a short story. But short stories are really hard to write because you have to mm. you have to catch through. You have to grab the reader. You have to tell a story. And, um, you know, everything has to unfold in a short amount of time. Are, are there methods that you use to write an effective short story? <sighs> I tend to plan them out quite a bit because exactly as you've just said, you don't have that time to kind of meander about like you're doing a novel, you know, to some degree, I plan a novel as well, but to some degree, if you were planning on getting to a scene in chapter two, but it ends up being in chapter three, it doesn't really matter that much in a novel. If it needed that extra chapter to establish whatever you were establishing, then so be it. But in a short story, you don't really have that luxury. You've, you've got to, like you say, introduce the characters, make people give a damn about them introduce a situation and to some degree resolve the situation or at least end the story in, in some capacity in, in such a way that it doesn't, I mean, with it being horror, it doesn't necessarily have to have a happy, nice rounded ending, but at the same time, you don't want to feel like the reader is, you don't want the reader to feel sorry, like they're expecting another page and there isn't one. It's still got to have a defined ending. So you've got to do that. So that's to me, planning is the key is the key to that work out what story I want to tell and, and the, the sort of build from there. And the, the origin point of my short stories is very, sometimes I think of a character first, sometimes it's an individual scene. Sometimes it's a whole setting. Like I want to write something about X and then I'll build it from there. But either way, once I've got that, there will be a lot of planning involved to, to make sure I tick all the things it needs to take within the page limit. Yeah, it's it can be really difficult to to do, and I think some people take that for granted. And, and you know, looking over all the all the work you've done, I was surprised that you we, you talked about a wide range of genres, and you've even uh, written some children's books. And I wondered, yeah, I, I wondered how you how are your approach changes when you write for different audiences like that? Because you go from writing a horror book to a children's book. How do you make that transition in your mind to uh, writing a horror book to a children's book, or or even a mystery or crime thriller? Well, for the children's book specifically, um, I kind of, when I talk to children in real life, like I've got nieces and nephews, I I don't have a, a child voice. You know, some people kind of adopt a certain tone and everything when they're speaking to children. Um, a slightly patronizing, slightly over-friendly tone, I find it, but others may disagree. Um you know what I mean? You know exactly the sort of... Yeah, I don't do that. I just talk to children exactly the same as I talk to adults, except I will not use certain words, whether it's because it's 
swearing or because it's a word that they might not understand or you know so i just kind of adapt the 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 words that i'm using but nevertheless the tone of voice and the way i talk to them is exactly the same as i would talk to an adult so i kind of approach the children's book in the same way so like i, I will adapt the subject matters um would, would obviously has to be suitable for children and there'll be certain language that i won't use in it and the sentence structure is going to be slightly different perhaps but nevertheless it's pitched in exactly the same level and, and treating the reader with the same level of respect that and uh, you know expecting their ability to understand it as as i would have done if i was writing it for adults so it was just a case of kind of modifying a few things to make it suitable really without trying to make it too in any way patronizing or anything like that um so with regard to the the mystery novel that i did uh, called which was called the old side sorry uh, the other side of the mirror uh, the children's book was called the old one on the sea um the, the mystery novel that I did was very much meant to be like a, almost like a film noir sort of feel to it. So that has a very specific tone, which I was going for. So I just kind of went for that. So if you think about uh, like your Raymond Chandler's and your old black and white movies and, and Sin City and, and anything like that, I just kind of adopted the same sort of tone of voice that you get for that and, and sort of told the story with that. I almost did it almost as if I could imagine it being read by someone which is great because it ended up as an audio book as well but but for that one that was kind of the thing where you need that narrator you need the you need to imagine the the prose bits in between the in between the dialogue you, you need to imagine somebody reading that out loud that was how i wrote that whereas with the children's book it was more telling the story and and in a slightly different way but, but yeah it, it's it's all, all comes down to planning i suppose for me um just get the story down first and then I mean plan it, then get it down in the first draft and then then worry about tone and, and what you need to change after you've done it. I think if you get too hung up on all that the first time you write anything, then you'll you'll never do it. Hmm. That's a good point. And I, I do know exactly what you mean when you say uh, you don't talk to children in a patronizing way. Uh, I know exactly what you mean by that. <laughs> that's that's a great way to, to approach it. And I would think that with you writing different genres that also helps you improve your craft as a writer with, with writing different genres and not sticking to one is that does that help you with, as, a, as a writer i think it probably does yeah it's, it's some variation isn't it rather than staying in a particular comfort zone and, and always doing the same sort of thing um i'm, I'm sure that it has helped it certainly um, like I'm, I'm currently working on a, a, a second children's book at the moment, uh, and that feels easier and more natural, if you like, than the first one did because it's not the first time I've done it now. So the more you experience in in terms of your art, if you're an artist, you know, once you've painted with a different type of paint or you've used a different type of craft medium, the first time you do it is always going to be the hardest. So the more strings you can add to your bow, the the, the better an artist you become just sort of naturally and organically. So I, I do like to, I'm not of a mind that I'm deliberately going to try every type of genre because um, as I said earlier, I just write the story that comes to my mind. But I, I do think it is beneficial to me as a writer that there is quite a bit of variation there. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I would i would think that would help you with uh you know just improving your, your craft and uh you mentioned loving ghost stories is there a favorite ghost story you have yeah probably the one i, I uh, mentioned earlier the whistle i'll come to you it's it's 
a great example of a ghost story to me. Uh, I also love my, my favourite book, which I read every single year and we'll be doing shortly, is uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, which is another brilliant example of a perfect ghost story. Because for me, one of the things that a ghost story needs in order to feel genuinely chilling and unnerving is some degree of isolation. So the person being haunted is the only person who experiences it because that's, it's almost like being gaslighted by the, the, the haunting, isn't it? And that you're experiencing this, but you tell anyone else and they just think you're crazy. I think the minute you add other people in who see the same stuff as you, it just becomes a problem to be dealt with. So like if I say every night in my house, the walls start bleeding and furniture flies around come around and have a look, Steve. So then you come around and then the next night you see exactly the same thing. Then now it's like, yeah, it's real. Steve just saw it. So now it's just a problem we need to deal with. Just like it would be if I had a problem with my plumbing or or, or if I had a crack in, the, in, in my drain pipe or something. It's just a problem that's to be dealt with. Then it's real. I've confirmed it's real. You've seen it. Then off we go. Let's deal with it. But when if, if you came around to witness that and it didn't happen, and it only happens when I'm there on my own, then you have that question in your own sanity and there's like a very isolating feel to it. And and the Whistle I'll Come To You story and um, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol both have that in that the person experiencing it is the only person who can testify to what's happened. And you also have the question as to has it happened or has their sanity, you, you know, abandoned them somewhat? particularly I think with the Christmas Carol in that you get to the end of that book and Scrooge wakes up in his bed the day after he went, you know, he went to bed Christmas Eve, he got up in the morning, it's Christmas day. There is nothing to suggest that he didn't dream all of that. Every film adaptation that's ever been done goes with the, the idea that it's really happened. But if you think about it, there's, there's no evidence that he did. He, he could entirely have dreamed all of that and had something of an attack of conscience and then woke up and decided to be better. And and you don't know that. And similarly with Whistle I'll Come To You, there's nothing in that that absolutely guarantees he the guy experiencing that haunting doesn't just imagine this whole thing and, and fabricate events and, and whatnot in his own head. So I think that isolation is is important in to me what makes a great ghost story, which is why both of those uh, well, one of many reasons why both of those are the ones I always think of as my favorite. You know, that's a great point about, you know, one person, if it's one person that it's, uh, you know, once it becomes more people that are involved, it becomes a problem to be solved. And as you were, as you were talking, I, I thought of the first story in Whistling Past the Graveyard, The Shape Off the Bow. Yeah. Of, uh, and the, the character, you almost have this, you question whether the character is losing his mind or yes. something's really happening. And that, that was, that was really great because one of my fears is, is losing your mind. And absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've had, um, as I'm sure many people, our sort of age, I'm in my late thirties of, of experience. I've had, um, loved ones who have reached of an age where their mind starts abandoning them. And I've, and I've, experience that firsthand where you go to visit them and they don't know who you are and then the next time they do and it's it, 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 to me there is nothing more terrifying than that the idea of losing yourself of still being here but questioning you know 
am I still me? What what defines you? If your mind is taken from you, are you even here? You know, you can be physically here, but if you don't even recognize your faces of your own loved ones, then are you even here as the person that you were before? And I think that even without any spiritual stuff, that's a, that's a terrifying idea so that as you said with the shape of the shape of the bow this is a guy who goes through a very traumatic experience and then every, everything that happens after that it's questionable as to whether or not it he's just completely lost his mind which is even without the supernatural event that that is a terrifying thing for anybody to be going through yeah definitely it's it's very terrifying and um, you know i always wonder i, I always love talking to to uh, to either authors or people who are creative and, and find out how they break down stories and just whether they're reading a book or watching a movie in, in your mind, what makes a good story? I think I'm, the, the primary thing for me is caring about the characters when it's something I'm watching or reading. And that is why I don't really limit myself to particular genres. I would never make a blanket statement that I hate sci-fi or I hate romance or I hate Westerns or anything. I will watch or read anything if i care about the characters you know if i get if i get to the point quite early in the film or series or whatever it is where i'm invested in these characters i give a damn about who they are now and what's going to happen to them then i'll watch the rest of it it doesn't matter if it's a guy going on an outer space voyage and he's got to survive against some aliens or if it's a guy who's trying to win back a girl that he was in love with five years ago it doesn't matter once i care about this guy and his objective or her and her objectives such as it is it I'm invested in the story then. So the specifics of what it is that's going on um, doesn't doesn't really matter. I just have to care about the character. And th- that is something that I worry about with cinema that we might be losing slightly because just to preface this, I, I absolutely love comic books. I've, I've been reading comic books since I was a child. I'm massively into Marvel and DC. I'm, I'm pleased that we're getting all the films that we do. But... The proliferation of massive superhero films and massive sci-fi films and stuff, it's like every film that comes out, even something like Fast and the Furious that used to just be about street racing, everything's got to have some like world-ending threat to it, you know, in order for us to give a crap. And it's like, what happened to a superhero film where the threat is that this villain's going to get away with some money? Or, you know, just like a much smaller... I mean, like even Spider-Man, who you could traditionally rely on for that stuff, right? Like Spider-Man's villains would genuinely not be the sort who were going to blow up half the universe. Even he is now, all his films tend to be universe-shattering stuff. You know, we don't seem to have any smaller scale stuff where the things that happen, if this superhero messes up and fails, it's going to affect like 20 people. But you still (laughs) give a damn because you care about the characters. And I feel like so much big cinema has kind of lost that now everything has to be on such a large scale and and i think that's not it doesn't need to be you can have a film where the events of that film only impact like six people and still care about it just as much as something where the threat is half of the universe dying. and you do that by making the audience care about the characters and what happens to them and i just i do worry that cinema's kind of lost that a little bit over the last few years hmm. that's a great point and you know, once you start raising the stakes and you become this, you know, goes from street level to world ending to universe ending. I mean, how do you come back to that, you know, the the story that affects 20 people or the, the bad guy who's going to get yeah. money? So it's hard to, to go back to that. And, and I, I wonder what, how do you get the reader to care about your characters? Are, 
are there certain things that you do to pull the reader in and, and to have them invested in your characters? That's tricky to answer, really, because I don't tend to worry about making my characters likable. I just make them seem like real people. Because the thing is, it's very easy with the modern world. The modern world kind of pushes us towards cynicism against other people, doesn't it? There's all these kind of memes and T-shirts and comedy that's based on the idea of, I hate everybody, leave me alone. But as a species, we are a tribal species. We like to be in groups. We like other people. Our natural society and capitalism might push us towards distrust and hatred of other people and everything's all about you. But actually, we our natural tendencies at a genetic level is towards cooperating with one another and helping one another and working together. If we hadn't done that, if we had been a somewhat individualistic species like a cat, for instance, we would not have survived and evolved to the point where we have. There's, there's, you know, our species works as a, a group, as a unit. Your natural inclination is to help other people and then is to, to be interested in other people, which is why I don't believe your character has to be likable in order for people to care about them. I think if you make them, you can have perfectly characters who are a bit of a dick, but you still, you understand their situation and you understand why they want to achieve this and and you can end up watching things or reading something where you really don't like the main character and you would not want to be friends with them but at the same time you really hope they achieve their objective you know it's 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 like again that's something i feel like is is lost these days with everyone being so worried about causing offense in in a way that they don't need to be because that's not you know i'm very left-wing myself i'm very big on not wanting to offend particular like you stereotypes and that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean all your characters have to be perfectly likable, lovable people who tick every single box. And do you know what I mean? You can have a character who's an arsehole, but still root for them. And <laughs> I, I sometimes worry that that's a little bit. People aren't quite always willing to, to write a character who isn't. And it's how you end up with all these sort of Mary Sue characters who are perfect in every way. And that's not a likable character. <laughs> so for me, I just think you have to relate to them in, in, the sense that you you want them to succeed in their objective or, or at the very least you're interested in whether or not they do, whether or not you like them as a person. You can love a fictional character, but at the same time think, I would hate this person in real life. It's, it's perfectly possible to have that duality, you know? Yeah, and I think the you know some of the most popular TV shows, especially the past you know, 15, 20 years, like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or even Mad ah, Yeah, perfect examples, yeah. They're, they're all unlikable. Well, they, in, in one way or another, they're unlikable and not someone you necessarily want to be friends with, but you still root for them. Yeah. Yeah, you care about what's happening to them and, and, and why. It, it, it's very difficult to... You don't want to write a character who's like deliberately awful. You don't want a character who's racist or, or homophobic or transphobic or any of these things because these are traits which are very difficult to sort of see past. You know, it's, it's not. So, but you can, but that doesn't mean they have to be a saint. They, they can be dislikable in in other words. You know, in other ways. Sorry, and and I think. It, it, because they're human. You want to write them as a human being, and nobody is perfect. Everybody's got some traits that are, are unlikable, and they might, you know, like I've got friends who I absolutely love, love them to pieces, but I would not want to work with them because I know what their work ethic is like. And in the workplace, no way, you know. And, and I think, depending on what your story is about, if, st- if that story is about them in the workplace, 
you're going to dislike them, but then you can take them home to their family in another scene and they're the perfect father and husband because that's real life. You know, you can have someone who at work is that manager that's a real taskmaster and everyone hates him, but at home he's a lovely bloke and his family and his kids love him. And he's, you know, you can have that. Those are real people. Nobody's just one thing. And everyone is layered. Everyone is a different character in everybody else's story. To some people, you're Steve, that lovely guy who does that podcast. And to some people, you're like, oh, I don't like that, Steve. You know, and all of those are equally true. And all of those go together to make up who Steve is as a person. And I think you can put that in your fictional characters just just as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some people that agree with you on that one. Uh and I, I do have more more movie questions for you that we'll get to here in, in just a little bit because I know you're sure. a big movie buff. But I wanted to ask you about because uh, I'd, I'd read that you do quite a bit of editing for mm. for other authors, and I wondered well, what are some some common mistakes you see new authors making as you ed- as you help with editing. Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think sometimes they go a bit. <sighs> It's difficult, actually, because I don't think I've seen the same thing over and over again, really. But but something I think I have highlighted more than once is uh, people thinking they need to labour a point a little bit too much. Like, you, you can trust your reader to, to get it. And I understand why, because it might be that if they don't get this point, then nothing that happens afterwards will make sense. But I think you can trust your, your audience to get that a bit. You, you, you can't trust your audience to get the point a bit more than, than I've seen some authors do sometimes. Um, and it, it, it's something that I'm quite hypersensitive to because I don't like anything being over-explained. You know, I, I find this with comedy a lot, actually, when you're watching comedy and the... Um, no offence, but this is something I find more with American comedians than British comedians, I've got to be honest. But they'll, they'll make a joke and everyone laughs. So everyone's clearly got it. But then they'll carry on talking about it. And it's like, no, we got it. We got it. You heard us laughing. We, we got it. Move on to your next thing now, please. But they, they keep like, it's like, no, stop hammering away at that same point. We got that joke. Move on now. And I find that really irritating. But authors can kind of do it in serious writing as well, where they've made the point that, okay, you've just told me that this guy keeps a bottle of whiskey in his drawer at, at work, in his desk. Okay. You don't then need to write three paragraphs explaining that he's an alcoholic. I got it. We got it from that line, you know. It, it's things like that which I find, and I, I absolutely understand where it comes from because it's important that there's going to be something later where it's important that this dude's an alcoholic. But yeah, so I get it. But nevertheless, you've got to trust your audience a little bit. And if they don't get it, that's them being thick. That's not up to you. You can't cater for the lowest common denominator. You, you've got to trust that the majority of the audience are going to get this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting answer. I, I wasn't expecting that um, for for new authors. Um, for for new authors or people who are aspiring to become an author, if they came to you for advice, what what advice would you give them? Don't try and catch up to what's already popular. Hmm. Like we mentioned that before, with like the Hunger Games and stuff. Just just write your story that you've got in your head. That thing you've been burning to write for ages. Just write that. And then try and find someone to publish it. Don't be looking at what's popular at the moment. Oh, I'll write one of them. Just because you'll always be playing catch up and you'll never have the passion for it that, that that drove you to want to become a writer in the first place. You shouldn't want to become a writer because you think it's going to make you money or something because 95% of people who write don't make money off it. Uh, certainly not 
you know, the kind of money you're thinking of, like with your, your JK Rowling or whatever, most people who write will probably not make a living wage off it. It, it. That should not be your motivation. Your motivation should be, I really want to tell this story. I've been thinking about it for years and I really want people to read it. So just do that. It doesn't matter if there's anything like it out there at the moment. It doesn't matter if you think it's popular or not. Just write that and then worry about that. If you can't sell that right now, it doesn't matter. You've written it, save it in a file and, and write your next one and maybe that will be picked up. The order that I've got things published is not the order that I wrote them. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Hmm. Because you, you should be writing that thing that you're passionate about, whether or not that's the first thing you sell. It doesn't really matter that much. And I think, you, because when you write something with passion, I think that comes through on the page. I think you can tell when you're reading a book that this author couldn't wait to get down on paper versus when it's the 12th book in a series and the author really doesn't give a crap about it anymore, but the publisher keeps pushing him to write more. I think you can tell. Yeah, you can tell. And is it a, is it a tough balance sometimes to write the story you want to tell or you want write the story you want to write and the story you want to tell versus uh, how to pitch it to a publisher? Is that a, it, can that be a tough balance sometimes to, to want to, to have it appeal to the publisher or to readers, but still tell the story you want to tell? Yeah, but I don't, I have to compartmentalize those things. So the first thing is writing the book. At that point, it's all just excitement and enthusiasm and get it written. I will think about that after it's done. Then I will think about pitching it and, and trying to find someone to publish it. But I mean, I should qualify that I am in a very fortunate position where the writing is not my full-time job. Mm -hmm. I, I have a very, uh, I have a good career outside of that, which is, which is very um, I, I, very enjoyable to me, which I'm also passionate about. So um, if I get something published or not, it, it doesn't affect my ability to pay my mortgage, you know? So I'm in that position. I understand and respect that if you are somebody who is making your bread and butter from writing, then you probably have to think a little bit more about whether it will sell. And that may as a consequence may affect your passion for the thing that you're writing, which is unfortunate. I get that and I understand why that's necessary, but for new authors, which is what you specifically asked me about, you surely still have a job. If you're quitting your job before you've even started writing your first book, I would question your sanity because <laughs> I mean, I applaud your self-confidence, but nevertheless, <laughs> You know, let's let's see how the first book sells before you start quitting your job and trying to live off it. You know. Yeah, yeah. And over the course of your of your writing career, how much has the how, how much has the book industry and the publishing industry changed that you've noticed? It's changed quite a lot in the sense that uh, there just seems to be far more. Um, like we said earlier, there's there's an awful lot of small presses now, which is great because it means people have written something which is a brilliant book, but none of the mainstream publishers would touch it. They, they've got a look in now. And also, because we've got such a saturation of media now, a lot of the films and TV are getting made, that are getting made are actually from some of these smaller things. You know, they were, they were smaller publishers. There was a time when the only stuff that would get made into film or TV adaptations or whatever would be coming from those four big publishers, whereas now it's not. And I think that's great. I think the fact that you might have a book that was published by a small publisher and only available in about five bookshops, but nevertheless, five years down the line, Netflix pick it up and make an adaptation of it. 
and now it's suddenly stocked in all the bookshops. I think that's that's really good. I think that's it's kind of opened up the, the gates a little bit. And it, it means going back to what we're saying about passion, it means that you can write that book that you're excited to write with more confidence that you will find a publisher who wants it because you're not just looking at four big gatekeeper publishers. You, you, you might have like a hundred to choose from now. They might not be as big and they might not be able to make you a hundred thousand dollars, but nevertheless, if that isn't your goal, which it shouldn't be, you are far more likely to get that dream project of yours out there than you were when there was that limitation. So I, I, I do think that's, that's a positive. Yeah, that's a good point about smaller the smaller stories now being adapted and not the just the major popular stories. And for new authors or even authors who are just looking to improve their craft, are there are there certain resources you would recommend or point them towards? Um like like what what do you mean? Sorry, what um, like a like maybe they should take a, a certain like a class or like an online class or, or read a certain book that would help them uh, just get a little bit a little bit better at writing uh, i've never done anything like that myself so i wouldn't be i've always just enjoyed writing and i've wrote for the hell of it since i was about seven years old mm, okay. so i've i've never had an and then i did i did creative writing as a, as a qualification at a college but i've never kind of attended a course or read a book telling me how to do it or anything because i don't personal opinion i don't really like anything like that I, I kind of feel like it's the equivalent of someone telling you how to paint you know i, I feel like if, you, you can tell them the technique but you don't want someone saying you shouldn't use that combination of colors or you shouldn't does, does that make sense you, you know you, sh you shouldn't be having someone tell you how to be creative i don't i don't believe in that you can teach someone how to write as in how to do sentence structure and how to you know spell and, and 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 how to structure a story and whatnot but you should not be having someone telling you how to come up with a good idea because that just seems like you no i, I don't you're setting like a structure to it then which is how you end up with everything being the same mm, and i think yeah. I, I don't really like that so I, I would avoid that kind of thing as a rule but i'm sure there are if you are someone who would, would benefit from that stuff then absolutely i'm sure there is a, a great number of resources which are are good in ways that I don't even know about because I haven't done them. So I'm I'm really not the person to talk about that because I haven't done them. Yeah, I, I can't see how that can stifle creativity though. Like you said, that's a good point. If it's done badly, I mean, it absolutely depends on the teacher, doesn't it? You, you know, any subject that you're learning, the teacher is key as to whether or not he's going to stifle your ability to do this well or inspire it. That's entirely dependent on the teacher. And, and their ability to convey the subject, I suppose. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you have a, an ideal creative environment or any kind of uh, uh, like traditions that you take when you're sitting down to write or is there, any, is there a certain environment that you like to in your creative space? Uh, no, I, I kind of quite early on, I deliberately removed myself of any such notions because I used to be quite like that. But then I can find that you get really sort of, um, you make it very difficult for yourself. Like, I can only write in this room on this desk when the house is silent and it's an exact 23 degrees and it's, you know, and I've got my, got my glass three quarters full of whiskey and I've got, and I just think you can end up 
making a rod for your own back with that. You, you want to be the sort of writer who, if you've got your laptop there, you can do it anywhere. That's what you want. And I, I in the early days of it, I could feel myself steering towards the former, um, and particularly um, with with. Uh, as I said before, with, with, with being autistic, you, you can end up making sort of rules for yourself for comfort, which is perfectly valid, but you, you can sometimes end up imposing things on yourself that aren't actually necessary. And I always try and catch myself before I do that. So w- with writing, I didn't want to fall into this trap of, I have to have this set of things before I can possibly write a sentence down. And so I, 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 forcibly made myself the type of writer now who if i've got my laptop i can i can do it Hmm. which means i can write on a plane or in a hotel room or in a coffee bar or in my own house or in the office or or wherever yeah it's good to be to be versatile in that sense to be able to do it anywhere at any time it's easy i understand why many people can't and i understand that you might live in an environment where you can't do it at home because you've got kids running around or whatever and and you might need a specific place but i think you don't want to get too specific about when and where you can do it if if you can avoid that Mm -hmm. and when you finish a book do you do you celebrate when you finish a book and it's done and the publisher looks it over and says okay we're good to go do you have a, a tradition that you maybe go out and have dinner or have a drink or something um well, I, I, ironically, since I mentioned whiskey there, I don't actually drink. Uh, I, I don't drink any alcohol at all. Um, so my sort of celebration, really, if you call it that, for finishing a book is to not think about writing for a couple of weeks. <laughs> because it's like editing a film, you know. you when you when By the time that book is with a publisher saying, yes, we'll have it, I've probably sick to death of that book. I have probably ri- written it 13 times. I've probably read it twice as many times as that. I probably can't stand the thought of those characters anymore. It, it, it's like when you watch a film in the cinema, you sit there and think, that was great, but the guy who edited that has probably seen it 45 times by now and can't stand it. And then he's got to go to the premiere and sit through it again. And, it, it, you know, you feel sorry for that fella. and that's kind of so like i i like to have that mental sort of palate cleanser for the next few weeks until i come up with another idea or until i'm commissioned to write something else i'm not going to do any writing stuff Hmm. i'm not going to think about it i'm not going to go back over anything i've written before i'm not going to start anything new i'm just going to let my brain sort of you know it's like cleaning out a dirty sponge just let it clean and dry and then we'll start again so so that's kind of like my sort of celebratory process for it if you like yeah, that sounds like a good uh, a good way to celebrate after you're after you're done with a, a long process like that. Yeah, I think you just need to cleanse your palate of it, to be honest, and uh, because you've been stuck in that world and those characters for so long. Um, if it's a full length novel, particularly, it's easier if it's a short story. But that you 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 want to have that cleanse before you start writing the next one, whatever the next one may be. Yeah, and. I wondered about, you know, I read about some of the books you've, your, uh, some of the, of the weird fiction children's books, you had mentioned that you were commissioning artists and illustrators for covers. Mm. And I wondered, what is that process like to commission an artist or an illustrator? Is that a long process or, or what does that entail? Well, not for me, because it was someone I was personally acquainted with, which oh. is really lucky. Um, so Liam Hill, who did the artwork, the cover and the interior artwork for my children's book, um, is is a friend of mine 
already and i knew he he illustrates uh, and and writes comic books as a rule that's his major thing uh and he and i actually both recently released a comic book together that i wrote and he illustrated oh wow um which is called detective vampire which is it's a humorous comic book it's, it's intentionally silly and it's it's about a vampire who attempts to solve crimes um in like the 19th century but the kind of the running joke is that he's terrible and causes as much damage as he tries to resolve um and it's a somewhat slightly subtle comment on society particularly british society um in that he kind of gets away with it because he's wealthy Mm. you know like nothing hides incompetence better than wealth you know, if, if you're coming from a working class background, whatever you want to do as a job, you've got to be bloody good at that job for people to take you seriously. But if you're wealthy, you can be terrible at it and people will still applaud you. <laughs> you know, it, that's just the way it is. And that's kind of, there's a slight commentary on that within the comic book in that it is awful and yet everyone thinks he's great because he's rich. So, he's you know, you kind of have to applaud him anyway. It's the emperor's new clothes sort of thing. But I'd seen the style of the artwork that Liam did, uh, and I thought, if he modifies that ever so slightly, then it's it's more or less exactly what I already had in my head when I was picturing this children's book. So I I asked him if he wanted to do it, and he said yes, so I I commissioned him to do it. And we kind of went back and forth on what – I wanted one image per chapter, basically. So we kind of agreed what those images would be and how they'd look and – sort of went from there really so that that was a really nice and enjoyable um relationship the only other kind of involvement i've had with with art before is where um the the publisher has asked me what sort of thing i want for the cover and i will give them my ideas and then they will commission an artist and and send me the proofs and i will say whether i like it or not but but ultimately i try not to sort of force my hand too much with anything like that because i don't know what a good book cover is just because something looks good in my i'm not an artist and i'm not a publisher and i don't want to be one of those people who just assumes they know everything you know like when you see a film made and the same guy wrote it directed it produced it and is the lead actor and you think oh god this is going to be bad you know, because there's no way he can actually be legitimately knowledgeable in all those things. You know, you can be one or perhaps two, but the chances of him being good at all of them is slim. You don't want to be that. You don't want to be your own writer, editor, promoter, publisher, cover artist. You know, you, you, so I will have an idea of what I want the cover to be like. But if the if the publisher says, okay we'll do something like that, but it will be better like this for here's some reasons. I'll just say, yeah, fine, because that's their thing, not mine. I'm not going to pretend to be expert, you know? Yeah. You, you do have some awesome covers, though, just looking through your... Thank you. Uh, yeah, your history, especially the other side of the mirror. I love that cover. It's like, yeah, it's that's uh, Francois Valancourt. He's a, he's a French cover artist. He's done covers for all sorts of big, big authors. I was very, very grateful that he was commissioned for one of mine. Again, I had nothing to do with that. The publisher arranged that. But if you just look through his portfolio, he's, he's, all his work is just amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I was I was really pleased with that. My only specification for that cover was I wanted the red opera mask on it because that is... the the, the murderer in in that book wears like a red opera mask and i wanted that on it but beyond that it was it was mostly him and yeah it's 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 beautiful what he's done with that Mm -hmm. 
definitely. And from my understanding, you're a big movie buff. And I wondered if you have any favorite movies. Oh, God. Loads. It depends on what I'm into, really. What what genre? Because I don't... Um, particularly now, because there's so many. I, I rarely watch the same thing twice. You know, because if there's so many... Every week, there's probably 10 new films to consume, isn't there? So it's, it's difficult to to kind of keep track of everything now uh, one of my, my probably my go-to film is 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 the crow which i just think is a beautiful piece of cinema it's one of the rare instances where the film's better than the book in my opinion um because the film has things to it which add to what makes up the film which the book can't have such as the the um, the atmosphere of it and the color palette and the music and, and all these sorts of things which you, you and the performances which you just can't get in a in a book or a graphic novel as as the crow is um, and I, and I love all of that it's one of those rare films where everything works together to make something which is greater than you'd think it could be mm. you know if you describe that film to someone on paper it you'd think yeah right it's a revenge flick but it's it's not it's more than that another example of that where everything goes together perfectly the the acting the script the music the cinematography is, is forrest gump where all of that is just perfect you couldn't improve any of it there's there's not a single part where you could say it would be better if we did this it's all just perfect so th- th- those are like two films that I immediately think of as being two of my absolute favourite films but there's, there's all sorts of stuff that I love like I said before I love the superhero films I, I love horror films I love action films I, I, I don't restrict myself to any particular genre with films so I, I, I really do have quite a really wide eclectic taste of stuff that I love and watch and the, the soundtrack to both Forrest Gump and The Crow are just so great I mean both yeah. of those soundtracks are spectacular I think they I, are yeah I wore my copies out years ago but yeah that's exactly what i mean you the, the music is so in, intrinsically part of those films that even though both of those things were books first i genuinely think the film is better for both because it, it, it becomes more than you know the story as good as it is the story is just part of what makes both of those films great everything else such as the soundtrack is is another part of that so it's it's a rare instance where the film is better than the book, but I do think both of those qualify. Yeah, and you mentioned having trouble keeping up because there's so much content now. Mm. The streaming services, it's you you almost can't keep up unless you're dedicated to watching uh, streaming all day. But uh, with the pandemic and all the changes in the, in the last couple of years, do you see theaters making a comeback or is streaming the, the future for us? I hope they do because I do like the cinema and I do like... Um, again, perhaps this is an age thing or the generation I grew up in, which I believe is the same as you. Mm-hmm. Um, I like going out for things. I'm not one of those people who wants to be in my house all the time and have my social interaction through my computer screen or my phone screen and have my v- film viewing through my phone screen and my job through my phone screen. And I like to go out to different places to do things. I don't like to be in the same in my house all the time, staring at a screen for every aspect of my life. So to have to go to the cinema and sit there and watch the trailers and get popcorn. And I like that whole thing. 
I enjoy that. I think it's it's been a part of my life as long as I can remember, and I I hope it will be. I don't like the the thought of films coming straight into my home the day they're released. I, I like the idea of having to go to the cinema and get tickets, and you know it's it's a it's a ritual if you like, and I, and I like it. So I would I would hope that cinemas would would make a big return post pandemic, and they seem to they seem to have been the big sort of tentpole releases that have come out of the last year or so have had a great. Uh, cinema take despite people still staying away and conversely the stuff that they have released straight onto streaming platforms haven't done half as well as they would have done if they were in the cinema so that suggestion that maybe this is the future hasn't really borne out which i'm personally pleased about yeah me too i hope it i hope it's not the future because it would be a little depressing to to and and plus going to the theater with with someone that you know your friends or your family it's an experience that you all experience together and it's something that yeah. you all remember. And you can't do anything else. You take in that film 100%. How often do you do that at home? You know, you're always, you're either eating at the same time, you're eating your meal or someone's on the phone or someone's having a conversation or someone's sort of doing their ironing or in and out or in a cinema, you are sat there and that is it. You know, th- there's nothing else going on that's occupying your brain except this film. And, I, and I, it would be a shame to lose that. Yeah, it would be a shame to lose that. And I, I do have a, a tough movie question for you. Go on. Because we're, we're from the same generation. I wonder, there's always this big debate over Die Hard, whether it's a Christmas movie or not. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to get your thoughts. Oh, it's difficult because you think, does being set at Christmas make it a Christmas film? Or does it need to be about Christmas? Yeah. So another example of this in a different medium is are you a fan of the simpsons by the way because uh, it used to be yeah the classic i mean yeah. i mean the classic yeah when it when it was good would you class mr plow as a christmas episode yeah why though well, just because it's well it, there's um, snow yeah. i mean it, there's, there's nothing about christmas going on it's ostensibly set at christmas but nothing about it is in any way christmassy and diab's kind of like that in that, yes, it is set at Christmas, but it, 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 it's, it's tricky to, to... I'm not sure I'd straight up define it as a Christmas film because it doesn't. it's not about that as such. It's just kind of set around that time, isn't it? Yeah, I think we may be in the minority because I don't think it's a Christmas movie either. And I, I looked it up and it was released in July because I thought maybe... Yeah, it was, was yes. Yeah. You know, maybe that's why it got that reputation because it was released in December or, you know, but it was, it was released in July. So I don't know where that came from. It's just because I think it's set at that point in the film and you probably see some decorations in the building because there's been Christmas party going on and that kind of thing. But nothing about it is about Christmas as such. It's just... It's just set then, and I, I think it, for something to be classed as a Christmas film, it, it doesn't just want for me snow and oh look, there's a Christmas tree in the background. It, it needs to be about Christmas in in some capacity. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. And you talked a little bit about comic books before, and you you had written a comic book, and I, I wondered, do you have any favorite comic books or any any that you've read recently that have stuck out to you? Yeah, I've always loved uh, Batman's always been my go-to. Uh, I've got every issue of Batman from about 1973 onwards. Wow. 
Oh, wow. I've managed to, for the mainstream ones, I must admit, I've not gone so much into the diversions like when there was a Robin series or a limited series that were 10 issues or anything like that. But for your main ones, which is like your Batman and your detective comics, from about 73 onwards, I've got every one. Prior to that, the price becomes a bit restrictive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have paid silly money to fill that collection, but but you start getting into like stupid money. To, to, to be getting much earlier than that um so i'm not which i'm not i'm not i can't justify to myself so I've, I've not gone that but batman is my favorite i do also like a lot of marvel stuff i kind of dip in and out like if there's a particular story that i'm interested in i'll get it in graphic novel form rather than the individual issues but i kind of dip in and out with it i used to read a lot of marvel stuff when i was a kid um, so I had a lot of the older comic books, but I, I also like stuff like um, Hellboy was was one of my favourites. I say it was because I'm pretty sure it's finished unless they brought it back. I really loved the world that Hellboy inhabited and the way it, every story kind of felt like a short story, but it, it was part of a grander mythology. And I think that's tricky to pull off because one of the things that put me off with Marvel as I got older is that you couldn't just pick up a random issue. You couldn't just pick up, walk into a comic shop and buy the latest issue of Doctor Strange because it would reference something that happened in Thor. And if you bought that issue of Thor, you'd need to read that that month's issue of Iron Man. And if you bought that, you'd need to read the, that month's issue of Avengers. And everything is interlinked in such a way that you can never just pick up a random issue. Whereas with Hellboy uh, and to a lesser extent Batman as well, you kind of can't. Like Batman does occupy the same universe as superman and wonder one everything but the events happening in their stories rarely affect it so if you only read batman it's fine whereas with marvel you kind of feel like everything's stacked upon everything else mm-hmm. and that that became a bit off-putting to me but I, I like um i liked the constantine books as well hellblazer i got all of them mm-hmm. uh daredevil kind of i come and go with daredevil there's been some really great um series runs of daredevil where it was written by a particular person for a while which has been great, but then the next person that picks it up, not so much, and then it gets good again. So I'm kind of in and out. Uh, same same with uh, the Punisher as well. That's that's a character who my interest in it comes and goes depending who's writing it. But yeah, I have got quite a wide collection of comic books and, and graphic novels. Do you have a favorite? Uh, do you have a favorite Batman story? Um, I really like the Long Halloween. That was, I think I've heard that that might be the basis of the new film as well, which will be interesting if, if true, because it kind of feels like an actual detective story, mm-hmm. but with Batman and Batman's rogues gallery and, and the artwork's beautiful. And yeah, that's that's one that I've I've always sort of come back to and read more than once. Because again, as, as with the streaming content, there's so much comic book stuff that I rarely read the same thing twice but the long halloween is one that i have gone back and read several times for that reason i also really like hush but um i do think that hush is kind of predicated on you knowing the previous few years worth of events in batman which obviously i do so that was fine but it's not one i could really comfortably you know if i had a friend who was not a comic book fan but wanted to try it out I could, we couldn't really lend them Hush because there's too much going on that they wouldn't get, whereas with A Long Halloween, I feel like you could. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it sounds like you've been collecting for a while, and I, I wonder what your thoughts were with, uh, I don't know, it was about maybe 15 years ago or so when DC uh, reset their universe with New 52. And, and I didn't like that. No? Okay. No. 
No, it didn't make any sense because it doesn't make any logical sense because then they suddenly had this thing of, oh, everything's happened within the last five years. So, okay, so Batman's gone through four Robins in five years, has he? <laughs> so so how old was Dick Grayson when he started? Because he's Nightwing now and he's clearly about 25 years old. So was he 20 when he first was Robin? That makes no sense. And it, it, and also Batman didn't get a Robin till the third year of his career. So he had them all in the last two years, actually. And it, it just, there's so much that made no sense with that, trying to force it all together and redo things and characters act, acting wildly out of how we'd come to know them. And, and I... I just didn't care for it at all. I was glad when they just basically undid it all and said, forget about that. I'm going back to how things used to be <laughs> because it just it didn't appeal to me. I like a good reboot when it makes sense. The, the crisis reboot that DC did in the 80s was good and it was made sense and it's because it was total. It was a complete wipeout. Forget everything, we're starting again. But the new 52 one didn't work because it was sort of partial. So for some characters, it was a complete wipeout like Superman. But for Batman, it was kind of not. But then what about all those old Batman stories that had Superman in? Do they not count anymore? Well, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's, you can't do a partial restart like that. It, it's too convoluted. So, it, And it just the, the writing and it wasn't that great either. So, that, no, I was not fond of that era. Yeah. What did you think about how they unraveled the New 52, how they went back? Was that, uh, I forget the name of the, the crossover event, but what did you think of the, the method they used to go back to where it was before? It was a bit messy, but it ultimately achieved a goal that I was happy about. There was a few, wasn't there? It wasn't just one story. There was kind of a few big comics-wide events which piece by piece unraveled it and put it back to how it was. And then they ultimately explained that it was all the doing of Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen, yeah. which was a bit... Yeah, It, it, it seems like a... a big easy get out clause but again if it put things back i'm like fine whatever just if it's putting things back to how they should have been left to start with then great because what i liked about the dc that i grew up with which is from the crisis on infinite earth reboot onwards is that everything matters so something that happened five years ago is still relevant now you know robin dying is still relevant even when he came back and was reborn as a red hood it, the events of that mattered green lantern his entire city was decimated by uh, Mongol during uh, the uh, Superman story. But that then meant Green Lantern went insane and, and became paralyzed. And everything that happened and the lasting consequences of that, which are referred to. And, and I liked that because it felt like you'd been part of this story for a long time. Whereas the new 52 just kind of said, oh, forget all of that. And and I don't I'm not I'm not a fan of that idea when you when you've been following something for so long. Yeah, I think I think they wanted to try to make it more accessible for people who weren't familiar with all the history and just wanted to be able to let people jump in. But like you said, it was just done so messy that it it didn't work out the way that maybe they intended it to work out. Yeah, the intention was fine, but it just didn't it just didn't work out really, unfortunately. And you also have to think about who's buying comic books. Is the majority of your audience actually like people who are now 10, 12, 13 years old? Because if it's not, why are you pitching it then? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to be realistic about who's actually walking into shops and buying them. Because if it is guys in the 30s and 40s and 50s and, and ladies who've been buying them for years, then that's who you ought to be pitching at. You might want to attract the 12, 13, 14-year-olds, but if they're not going to get off their iPad and buy comic books, then why are you wasting your time? Yeah, if, if that is their... 
if that is the audience that they're trying to pitch to, then they need to lower the prices of these singular. That as well, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Because they can get pretty pricey for a you know twenty page issue. Yeah, they, they really can now. Yeah, the, the price has jumped quite considerably in the last few years. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people wait for trades for the trade paperbacks to yeah. be released, and they don't buy single issues because they get, can get so expensive, and it's all collected in one one single collection. And you don't have adverts either. Then you can just you just get the story in its entirety with no adverts. Yeah. Exactly. Although I do like the adverts in in the older comics because it's kind of like a snapshot of a particular era. Like it, it's a way of almost like going through time. If you look at what was what was being advertised at kids in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties, and you can kind of see this kind of tonal change and like particularly when you get around the 90s and everything suddenly has to be extreme and radical and all that kind of stuff and it's it really seems quite cringy because you know that those adverts were come up with by a bunch of blokes who were older than us trying to trying to it's like pooching the dog on the simpsons it's like everything feels like that in the 90s whereas like in the older adverts, there's more like a genuine sort of, hey, kids, you might like this new product. Whereas in the 90s, it's like guys in suits trying to appeal to teenagers and it's just awful. But it's it's quite enjoyable to see from, from nostalgic point of view because you think, oh, I remember that. And it, it's nice seeing these different areas of adverts. Like you get that really awkward era in 80s comics where almost every advert's got OJ Simpson in it. <laughs> and and you look at that now we're thinking oh that's not aged well <laughs> you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff like that which but I, I love that because it's it's great sort of snapshots in time it's not just the stories themselves but the adverts in between that kind of showcase the world that these stories were in at that time and i i, I do quite enjoy that for the older stuff yeah and the the x-ray glasses and the the funny yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I always wonder if you wrote to one of them now and sent the money, do you think you'd get anything? Yeah, I thought about doing that just to see what It's happens. an interesting experiment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you're right about it being a snapshot, though, because you, you find some really interesting uh, advertisements in those older comics. Yeah, you do. Yeah, it's just stuff that you think, I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, there's, there's toys... Uh, like the toy franchises that I, I didn't even know were, I didn't know they had toys for this particular thing, you know, and, and things like, um, the, the, I love illustrated adverts. There's so many toy adverts, which are actually illustrated because it was cheaper than photographs. So like the first, if you get comics from like the late seventies, the first Star Wars toy adverts are all illustrated. Hmm. So it's not photographs of the original Star Wars toys. It's all drawings of them, which are really lovely. But that's like a moment in time when you think, imagine a time when the, I think it was Kenneth's toy company didn't have the money to take photographs of their Star Wars products. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so bizarre to think now, but because like Star Wars is quite famously makes more money by far from its merchandise than from the films itself. But obviously, this was at the time when that wasn't the case. It was a brand new thing. And it was like, hey, kids, we've got a new film coming out. Here's some toys we're getting from it. And yeah, I, I do like seeing stuff like that. I think that is that is one reason to buy the actual comic books rather than the graphic novels, if the price isn't unrealistic, as we said before. Yeah, we're going to have to dig up some comics and send some, uh, send some checks off and see if see what you get <laughs> this company hasn't existed since 1973 yeah 
And I also read that uh, you're a big music buff too. And I wonder. Well, yeah. Yeah, I love. I do love music. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know if I describe myself as a buff because that suggests a level of knowledge which I probably don't have. I don't. I'm not one of. I'm not interested in music in such a way that I could tell you oh this was recorded in 1983 and that band member was actually only in there for six months and you know i'm not i'm not a music buff in that way but i have quite a large uh, appreciation for music and quite a wide variety of of taste as well what are you listening to recently is there anything that uh, sticks out in your mind um right my go-to when i'm writing tends to be sort of uh, i listen to a lot of either tom waits or nick cave as a rule, because that tends to set the sort of atmosphere that I'm, I want. I can't have like cheery, jolly music on in the background when I'm trying to write something sort of grim. It doesn't, but you know, because yeah. music kind of affects my brain and, and the chemicals that my brain are releasing. So I, I need to sort of match that up to the tone that I'm aiming for, which I don't think is rare. I think a lot of people do that. Um, but uh, so that tends to be the sort of thing I listen to when I'm writing, but I've, I've also been listening to, um, like we, we recently bought, uh, a few albums, which we did have on, so like on CD, but we've been buying quite a few things on vinyl. So I've been going back to a lot of stuff that I listened to years ago, but perhaps haven't listened to for a while because it's, it's in there somewhere on my music player, like my iPod, but it's in there amongst like 5,000 other songs. <laughs> Whereas when you get a vinyl record, you put it on, and that's all you listen to. Which is why I'm 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 into vinyl. I like I like vinyl. So I've been going over things like David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen and and Alice Cooper and artists who I was into a big time as a teenager. But as I said, apart from the odd song coming up on my shuffle, I probably haven't heard them properly for quite some time. So that's been really nice to properly sit and have whole albums on by these artists who I haven't heard for properly for quite some time. Yeah, I, I do hope physical media makes a comeback, and that might be just be the our generation. But I I, I like the experience of, of holding the record or the uh, the media, the book. Mm. And I, I like that experience, even with CDs. But you know, back when CDs were everywhere, it, the it was a frustrating experience to get the plastic off and to the little sticker on the case. But that whole experience, <laughs> and I, I miss that. Yeah, I think it makes you appreciate it more. Yeah. <laughs> like if you've got an album which you've used your 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 allowance or pocket money as we call it here if you and you're a kid and you've bought that you're going to listen to every song on that whereas if you've paid nothing and just got it on spotify if that album doesn't grab you in the first 35 seconds you just click skip and go to the next song mm-hmm. and you never gain that appreciation for it because some things like if you get an album by prince a lot of music by prince for instance and, and david bowie as well it's not something that you immediately love the first time you listen to it. it. It's kind of a grower. You've got to listen to this a few times to really get it. And then it will be the kind of music that you love for the rest of your life. But you're not going to get that when you can just click skip and go straight onto the next song. Whereas if you have to listen to the entire CD or the entire vinyl, you appreciate it more. Just like with a video, if you've gone into the shop and bought a VHS or a, or a DVD, you're going to go home, you're going to watch that entire film. And, and perhaps gain an appreciation for it, even if you thought the first half an hour wasn't great. Whereas if you're watching something on Netflix and the first half an hour is not great, you just abandon that and pick one of the other 10,000 films that's available. Yeah. So I don't think 
streaming or music streaming or, or any kind of streaming really I, I don't think it lets you appreciate stuff quite so much as physical media does plus then you get the whole package like if you think about albums when they were done as a whole product like the cover mattered and and you'd get this, the whole sleeve would matter and you get the lyrics in there and it felt like the whole thing was a complete piece of something whereas you don't get all of that when it's just streaming hmm and also, too, I think the the art of, of constructing an album is becoming a lost art, too, because now everyone's yes. so focused on singles. and Yes. Yeah, because you get albums where you need to listen to it in the certain order. You know, you need to listen to... If you just randomly put track seven on, it makes no sense. But if you listen to the first six, you realize that it's kind of the next chapter in a story, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's meant to be meant to be listened... It's meant to be heard as, as a, well, you know... From start to finish, and not yeah, in the middle. yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you have any pets? Yeah, we've got uh, four cats um, and a chinchilla. We did have three chinchillas, but they were quite old when we got them, so we've only got one left now. Mm. Um, the cats, we we've got two which were we chose to get as kittens. The other two we kind of ended up rescuing from people who either didn't look after them properly or one of them their owner straight up just moved out and abandoned them so we took her in um so we've we've ended up with four um i mean i'm very fortunate in that i live in the countryside so we've got lots of areas outside for the cats to to run around and and do what they do so it's 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 not a problem having four cats but i never plan to have that many but it's just if i'm in a position to to take one in and i can look after it i'm gonna do that you know, even if it might become a bit of a minor inconvenience for me because I didn't want four cats. It, you know, that cat now has a home and a happy life and I've given it that. So, it, you know, it's something I'm going to do. So, so yeah, we've, we've got the four, um, which is, uh, I, I like having pets. I do. I think it kind of fills your house in, in a way, which you, you don't notice it until you live in a house that doesn't have any. Yeah. And then you kind of feel the absence, I think. Yeah, it feels empty without them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what would what would be something your uh, your readers would be surprised to learn about you? Oh, oh, that's a broad question, Steve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, can I get any context for that? That's a bit difficult. What? Uh, maybe uh, just a, a weird tradition you have, or uh, certain habits, or um, something you do in your books, or. Um, Probably, probably uh, I mentioned it earlier, but just because of the stereotype with rice, it's probably just that I don't drink and I don't like any part of that. I don't like drink culture. Like It's a very big thing in Britain, the whole going out and, you know, going from one bar to another and, and all of that I, I, with the express purpose of seeing how much alcohol you can consume. And I just don't like any of that. It's, it's um, I don't like, again, it's all stuff which is, explainable because i'm autistic but i don't like anything that reduces my control over myself so alcohol drugs anything like that i'm not i'm not a fan of that i don't i'm not comfortable around other people who seem aren't like they're not in control of their self either so i'm not fond of being around drunk people um i i struggle to connect with and relate to people anyway i because i struggle with social cues and and dictats any that I've managed to learn and, and get straight in my own head, just all of that training, if you like, goes out the window when people are drunk anyway. So it's even more difficult for me. 
I also don't like um, too much going on at once. So like in a bar where you've got loud music and lots of people talking and a crowd and it, it's, it's too much. I can't, I get very stressed and anxious in situations like that and I just need to go. So the whole sort of places where drink culture takes place is just not for me at all. I don't begrudge, I don't have any moral issue with it. It's not that. It's just for me, for my own reasons, I, 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 I cannot be a part of that. And I think that probably surprised a lot of people because stereotypically you think of a writer as being a heavy drinking person, <laughs> particularly for the British, whereas I just don't fit that stereotype at all. Yeah, you know, for a long time, I, th- I thought the whole pub, um, the pub culture, you know, the let's go to a pub and let's let's have, you know, I, I thought that was all, a, you know, like a, like a stereotype. I didn't think that was a real thing until recently that, I you know, I made, met some people who are from there and I asked them about it because I was curious, like, is this really a thing? And they said, yeah, it's really a thing. So it's Yeah, I don't like, I, I like, I love going out places, but I like going places where we're going to do something. So let's go paintballing, great. Let's go bowling, great. Let's go to a climbing wall, brilliant. Let's do an escape room, fantastic. Let's see a movie, great. But let's just go and stand in a pub drinking. No, no, thank you. I'm not. It, it, none of that is really appeals to me. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I know it's my problem. You know, it, the, it, because again, I, I lack the software to use that term again. I, that makes that makes people enjoy that stuff. The, the nuance, the nuances, and the social reasons that people like that are something which is denied to me because I don't have that software, which is fine. But I just resent feeling like I should do something. I'm very much a live and let live sort of person. You want to go off and do this and enjoy it? Great, have a great time. Don't try and force me to come with you though. Yeah, that that's that's very much my stance on things. Yeah, that's great, great uh, perspective to have. And uh, we did have a, a question from Book Reading Coffee Drinking. She's a, a YouTuber. Okay. She wanted, she wanted to know if there's a hobby or a thing you were excited to try, but after you tried it, you didn't like it. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I was have a think. There's the, I, I tend to try most things once, and if I don't like it, then I don't do it again. But I've been quite fortunate in that most things I've given a go Um like early in this year, we had. Um, do do you get the TV show Ninja Warrior in the US? Do you get that? Yeah, we do. Yeah, so the, the, a, a course for that was set up uh, here uh, in my hometown uh, at the beginning of this year, and we we went and tried that out, which was great. I mean, I am quite physically fit and active and everything. I, I've got to the gym a lot, so that I'm, I'm physically capable of doing stuff like that. Uh, and that was good fun. Uh, it's harder than you think it's going to be. But, but yeah, anything like that, I I, uh, I, I enjoy having a go at it. Um, I think there's a – I don't know if this answers the question or not, but there, there are things that I would, I would do more if I thought that I could. But, like, like music, you know, I'd love to be able to do music, but I, I can't. I have no musical ability. I have no rhythm. I can't keep a beat. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't play an instrument. All of that is completely denied to me. Um, so like something that I have tried to do is, is go on social events where that's the thing, you know, we're going to go dancing or we're going to go to a karaoke club or whatever. And I've tried it and just thought, no, this is not, it's another area that's completely just 
I'll, I'll cross that out on the list. I can't, I can't do any of that. And it's not something where I could do it by getting better at it over time. It's just something where all of that is completely denied to me. So music or any part of it is something where I'm very happy to enjoy it as a consumer of it. But singing, dancing, playing instrument myself, anything like that is just not something that I can do. And I'm okay with that. That's fine. The uh, that Ninja Warrior uh, course sounds like a lot of fun. It was. It's just the difficulty with it is the fact that you do it all one after the other. Mm-hmm. There's there's any one of those obstacles that was there. I'm fairly confident I could do in isolation. But when you're doing that after you've just done ten other things, you just don't have the energy. I certainly just didn't have the energy to to then do it because you've just done nine other things in a row, which were also physically exhausting. But yeah, it was, it, it was really good fun. I went with a bunch of friends and, and that was uh, all of varying physical abilities and stuff. And it was just really fun. The other thing is I'm not, I'm not competitive with sports or anything really. I, I do stuff like sports and, and games or anything because I enjoy it. And my key thing is doing it because I enjoy it. I don't really care if I win or not. You know, I will give it my best, but I'm not bothered if I don't win. It's not that's not why I'm there. Winning just in and of itself has no intrinsic value to me. I doing something because I enjoy doing the thing that I'm doing. I mm. I don't understand these people who are like insanely competitive to the point where they strip the joy out of something. Like when you see people playing like competitive video gaming and they do things like, oh, if you stand in this corner of the map and face this angle none of the other gamers can shoot you because it glitches. So I stand there for 45 minutes and win the match. And I just think, is that fun? Is that enjoyable? The purpose of this game is to be enjoyed is what you've just described fun. I mean, yeah, you'll win. Good for you. But is that, have you had fun there? Was that an enjoyable 45 minutes? You know, and it seems like that. I don't get it. I don't get that attitude. Or or like where you're you're so desperate to win a race that you'll start taking drugs and stuff to do it just to make you run that little bit faster and stuff and damage your body as a result. And I don't don't see – it makes no sense to me. I don't have that competitive drive. I I will – whatever I attempt, competition-wise, I will give it my best. And if I win, great. If I don't, I'm not bothered because my focus there is enjoying the thing that I'm doing. Because if you're not enjoying it, why are you bothering? Yeah. You know, I almost um, for people who are hyper competitive and and they get really bothered and they get really angry. I almost feel bad for them because it seems like a miserable existence. Yes, exactly. So why are you putting this much of yourself into something if this is what you get out of it? Mm. If this is what it does to you, why why are you doing that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This must be must be tough to to have that to constantly put that pressure on yourself and it. A lot of the people that are hyper competitive are just like you know weekend warrior types. So they're out with their friends playing basketball or whatever, and it's like, what, what's the big deal? You know, it's just yeah. It, you're not you're not getting a million dollar contract here if you if you score this basket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you won't have any agents calling you if you. Uh, no, you're not going to be getting your own line of trainers or anything like that. Just calm down. Yeah, <laughs> just relax. Uh, so the next question I have for you is if you could spend the day with anyone living or dead, who would it be and why? Anyone at all? Anyone at all. Any time, any person. Oh, uh, probably my grandfather, to be honest. Uh, I, who I mentioned earlier, I, I lost him when I was about 22. And 
I was very, very close with my grandfather. Uh, I actually credit him not only with uh, sort of inspiring my love of horror, but but not not to sound too melodramatic, but I kind of credit him as the reason that I'm still here because um, I, I was quite badly bullied as a teenager. Uh, again, autistic people don't get it. Uh, just think you're weird and anything. Our society, particularly in the school system, and I'm sure it's the same in America, is very much conditioned to not like anything abnormal. If you don't fit in, that's the end of it, basically, for you. Uh, and there was many times in school where I was pushed to the point of feeling like I did not want to be here. And my grandfather was the the person who would always sort of remind me that I did without even trying to. I never talked to him about that. I never told him that I'd been having such thoughts. But just by being in his company and just spending time with him and him talking to me the way that he did and just making me feel like it was fine to just be who I was, that would always sort of bring me back. So, you know, I, I owe him a great deal. But it, sadly, he passed away before I ever actually got any work published. So I never got to talk to him about that. I would love to be able to go to him and say, look at this book of short stories that I've written, Grandad, you know, and I never got to do that. So to to be able to just have that day with him where I could, because the other thing is we've talked about films quite a lot, so this is relevant. So I, I always used to watch films with my granddad. He used to take me to the cinema when I was really young. We used to go every week. And when he got... Um, he got quite bad arthritis in his hand, so it was difficult for him to drive. So he couldn't safely drive anymore. So we didn't do that. So I started taking films up. I would get new films on video and take them to his house instead. So we we had, and then we watched other stuff. One of our favorite things to watch together was um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, actually. He, he really loved that show when we used to watch that together and, and then Angel afterwards. And that was a big thing for us. Um, and yeah, we used to we used to really watch films together. And, and even now, even though I've been without him like 15 years now, I will come out of a cinema and I will still have that thought of, oh, I'd love to get that on video and take it up to my granddad. He'd love that film. Because that's what I used to do. I'd go to a cinema and see a film and think, yeah, he'd like that. So then when it came out on video, I'd get it and then I'd take it to his house and we'd watch it together. And that thought still occurs to me, even though I've been without him for, like I say, like a decade and a half now. I, I will still have that thought. And... So I'd love to be able to spend a day where I could watch a couple of films that he never got to see, which I knew he'd have loved, show him some of my books and, and perhaps let him read some from one of them. And, and yeah, just, just that, really. I know that's perhaps unimaginative. You might have asked other people and they're coming out with famous authors or historical figures or whatever, and I'm, I'm picking someone who already was in my life, but that would that would unquestionably be my answer to that. No, I, I've had uh, a wide variety of answers for that one. I think a, a few people have mentioned family members that they like to spend time with again. Oh, good. Well, that's that's nice. Yeah. No, you're not alone there, and that's a really powerful connection you had you had with them. Yeah, it was absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I wondered if if you have any favorite authors or books. Yeah, M.R. Um, James is one of my favourite authors who did The Ghost Story, which I mentioned earlier. I, I love all these short stories. The way he tells a ghost story is exactly the way I like ghost stories to be. It's like, I love ghost stories in all ways, but you know, like if you really love pizza and lots of places do pizza, but there's one place that does it exactly how you want pizza to be done, you know, and no one else can quite touch that. That's how I feel about his ghost stories. 
everyone who has a ghost story does it in a different way and, and they're all enjoyable in a way but his are always that little bit better to me um and so he, he's like my favorite teller of ghost stories charles dickens is another author i'm a big fan of uh, arthur conan doyle as well did you notice there's a trend of them being sort of like older old school authors i, I just like the way kind of these more old school authors write there's something about the way in which they describe things and the way in which they structure their sentences which i i just I'm drawn to, so I, I do tend to read an awful lot of sort of early twentieth or nineteenth century stuff like that. Hmm. And excuse me. So before I let you go, I have a couple couple more questions for you. Sure. That I, I try to finish off every conversation with it, with these couple of questions. So if the if the zombie apocalypse started today, what would be your weapon of choice? See, that's tricky because we don't really have weapons in the UK. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what am I going to use? A kettle, teapot. Uh, it, I think what you want is something that's not going to run out. Mm-hmm. Everyone always thinks gun, but it, where are you going to get ammo when that's run out? You know, it, it, it's just an empty. It, it, all right, you've got a you've got a machine gun, great. But once you've run out of bullets for that, it's just a piece of metal, isn't it? You want something like a, an axe, or. Not really an axe, not necessarily something bladed because that blade's going to get rusted and, and blunt and it's going to get stuck in things. You, you want something like a baseball bat. Yeah. You know, like an aluminium one that's not going to break. Some, something that you can hit them, get away from you because your objective is to get them away from you, isn't it? So you can get safely away. You're not going to try and kill them. In a zombie apocalypse situation, you're talking about a situation where the majority of the planet is now a zombie. So you are not wanting to get into a combat situation because you're not winning that. You, you want to get away from them. So something like a gun is not that useful in a crowd situation anyway, but an axe is going to lodge into the head or the chest of each one you hit it with. You've then got to pull it out. That's costing you precious time. Just something like a baseball bat would be best, I think. Just you swing it around and keep them away from you. Yeah, and it doesn't need refilling. It doesn't need sharpening. You don't need to find fuel or bullets or anything like that. I've had a, a few interesting answers to that one. I've had, uh, you know, like a, a street, like a street sign, like a stop sign, or a, you know, that is a shield, and a yeah, that there, works. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, uh, pretty. You have to get creative in that kind of situation. I, I think a gun would be a really bad idea because it would just draw attention to you too. So that as well, the noise of it. Yeah, yeah. And do you prefer your zombies fast or slow? Um. It depends because there is kind of the slow creeping dread of the things, anything that takes its time. It's why the Terminator was always quite intimidating. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that he's just going to slowly walk after. And they did that with um, the inspiration for the Terminator, Yul uh, Brenner in the original Westworld film. Just the idea that you can run and run and run and it's just slowly going to walk after you and it's never going to get tired, but you are. So it doesn't need to run because you're going to get tired and it's not. And there's something about that with the slow-moving zombies as well, that you can proper run away, but there's another thousand of them coming the other direction, so ultimately you're just going to get tired out. There is like a slow creeping dread about that, but I do think the ones running after you had a kind of intensity to it. So I think they're both equally valid. Like I did this zombie night in... Uh, where I live, um, 
I live on the edge of the Peak District, which is in the north of England, which is lots of moors and fields and all that kind of thing. But there's a city near to me. The nearest city is Sheffield, which is a former industrial city, and it used to have a lot of steelworks and stuff, a lot of which are now abandoned. So what they did a few years ago is the, this company hired a load of old sort of streets and, and whatnot. Because what you used to have, just to give the context for this, is you used to have like a steelworks and then you'd have a village around the steelworks where everyone in that village worked in that steelworks. So it was basically like a village that was built by that company to to sort of staff that steelworks. So they'd have a lot. Yeah, you might have other shops like a post office and a, and a corner shop and, and whatnot. But nevertheless, everyone who when you know the majority of the people lived in it was all the, the steelworks with the central gravity I'm, I'm sure you guys have got that with like mining and stuff right where you used to have like mining towns and, and that kind of thing where when the mine shuts down everything goes yeah so some parts of sheffield are kind of like that in that there are streets where the entire street is empty now and it has been for a while and there's a corner shop still there that no one it's gone it's but you can still see that it's there and there's a pub that was there and that's got so they, they blocked off an area like this and basically set up a zombie night there and where there was loads of actors portraying zombies and other actors portraying like military personnel and and, and whatnot and other survivors and you you paid to be a part of this and you and your team would be given an objective to complete, which you then had to complete in this kind of thing where the second you stepped inside, everyone was an actor. But the fact that it was these empty streets and empty factories and empty shops and everything just really sold it. And it was great. And the, to get back to your question, the, the reason this is relevant is because that had a combination of running zombies and slow ones. And you didn't know which they were until they came for you. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that, that added a level of intensity because they, they added a whole mythology to it, which you were introduced to at the beginning when you had your mission briefing, which was great, where there's like different mutations and the ones that could run always have like this screech. So whereas the shambling slow ones didn't. So you'd see like a zombie stood under a lamppost or like about 10 of them just like shambling around because the actors were great and they'd be stood there sort of shambling under this lamppost and you've got to sneak past them. And you'd think, oh, they're the slow-moving ones. It's fine. But then one of them would turn and screech, and you'd be like, oh, crap. And then they'd all run at you. And, but you didn't know until they started moving. So I think that is an example, which works in films as well, where having both types actually is quite good as well because you don't know which it is until they come at you. And you don't know, can we safely sneak past these or are these going to run at us full pelt? Uh, and what what happened when the when the uh, zombie actors caught you? What what would happen then? They had this. Um, I can't think of the word. Sort of like a, a, a luminous powder all over themselves, which you couldn't see, but which showed up under a UV light. So they would basically just like pat you on the back or on the chest or wherever they grabbed you. And then when you got to the next safe zone, you had to be scanned, and if you were infected, you couldn't carry on. So the objective was to get to the end with one of your team members not infected. If you didn't, it's like lives on a team. You know, you've each got one life. If you if one of your team members gets through, you've you've got one life left, so you've you've won. But if if all of you infected, then you don't achieve the objective. So that was how they did it. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was great. It was really really good. Unfortunately, they've never done it since because I think the logistics and how expensive it was to set up and everything. It, the ticket prices they did it for a really good ticket price, but I think 
it, it was operated at a loss. And in order to do it in such a way that it actually turned a profit, they would have to charge a ticket price, which people would not be willing to pay. So it just wasn't tenable to do it more than once, you know? Yeah, it seems like the, the novelty would wear off. Yeah, it's just the fact that you hear about it and think, oh, that sounds great. Oh, £25, or that'll be about $35, I suppose. Yeah, we'll pay that. Great. But when they're off, when, they, when you're expecting you to pay $200 for it, you just kind of think, no, no, I'm not doing that for two hours entertainment. And that that's a problem because of how elaborate it was. That's what they would have had to charge to make it viable as a continuing thing. So it just sort of collapsed on itself, unfortunately. But I'm, I'm glad I did it while it was an option. And yeah, that in that instance, the, the the quicker running zombies were more more terrifying than the, the slow ones because they're actually running after you. Whereas I think the slow ones, it's that creeping dread when there's enough of them that you you cannot get away because you're going to get tired and they're not. So it's just a case of how long can you get away, but ultimately they are going to get you. Yeah, that inevitable inevitability. Yeah. And the, the last question I have for you is, what was your first job? I My first job, I worked in a shop called Argos, which I don't know if you have in the US. I don't think you do, but I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, you might have a store like it. And the, the novelty of Argos is that you walked in and there isn't anything on shelves. It's like you walk in and there's a catalog and you pick something from that catalog and then go to the till and say, I want this. And then they put that order through, and someone in the warehouse then sends that item up on a conveyor belt, and then you take it home. Hmm. Um, so the novelty is that the, the shop doesn't have to pay for like fancy displays and having everything on shelves and stuff, and the front shop bit is actually quite small. It's like a warehouse at the back of it. Um, so you, you kind of pick what you want, it was a 1980s thing, and then it, it, it kind of it's still there, but it's not it's not as big as it used to be because obviously online shopping has kind of removed the need for this. So rather than you, it's kind of a speed thing, you know, like when everything in the 80s and 90s retail people wanted it to be quicker and faster and more efficient before we got the internet, which kind of did that to be extreme. So rather than walking around a shop and looking for, oh, where's that thing I want to buy? You just go straight to that. Oh, I'm, I'm here for one specific thing. You go straight to that section in the catalog, find that thing. Number two, three, four, five. Great. Go to the till and say, I want two, three, four, five. Please pay for it. And then they bring it up. And my first job, which was only a summer job, was working in the warehouse bit. You get the numbers come out on a ticket and then you'd go and find the thing and put it on the conveyor belt and, and send it up. And that, that was the first job I did. Hmm. And what were your takeaways from that at the time when, when you had that job? Um, it was the first time I'd experienced really just how unreasonable some people can be. Because I was only a teenager when I did that job. So my experience of the world was very much sheltered, if you like. You know, it was other people my age or teachers or parents and family members. The idea, you know, th th I hadn't had much dealing with the general public at large, you know, which you don't as a teenager, dear, beyond that sort of bubble. And just how unbelievably rude some people can be to people in shops. And, and that was new to me. I'd never, I'd never experienced that before because I'd never, you know, my, my mom and dad had been rude to people in shops. 
so I'd never seen anyone behaving like that. And because I hadn't worked in the shop before, I hadn't experienced it before either. So that was a complete revelation to me, just how unbelievably rude and hostile some people can be for the most trivial of things. And I always just think you're aware that I still think like this now, but I say you're aware that that's a human being on the other end of your voice right now, right? That's, that's a person just like you are. It's not, you know, they, they are a human being in every respect in the same way that you are. So why do you think it's acceptable for you to be interacting with them in the way that you've chosen to do? Mm-hmm. You know, we all have frustrations. We all have things that don't go wrong. And don't get me wrong. If you request an order at a restaurant, for instance, and you say, I want the vegan option and what they bring out isn't the vegan option. I absolutely respect your right to send that back and request it. But there's a way to do it that you don't have to be rude and hostile and aggressive and, and some people just go straight for that. They have this sense of entitlement and it's, yeah, that was, that was somewhat revelatory to me <laughs> dealing with the general public at large for the first time in that way. Just, just quite how awful some people are. Yeah. It's, it's terrible, especially this time of year with the holidays coming up. I mean, yeah. It's, it's the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be about, isn't it? This time of year, it's the complete antithesis of what this time of year is supposed to be about. And I just don't think people see themselves. Yeah, I think if they took a step back and saw themselves from another perspective, they would realize how unreasonable they're being. Yes, I agree. Definitely. So uh, if someone wanted to connect with you online, where's a good place for them to find you on on social media or um, where's a good place to connect with you? So Twitter is the primary place where I talk about writing stuff. I like to keep my Facebook for people I actually know. So that's more personal stuff. Um, so my Twitter is at Lex H Jones, and that's where I post about book stuff and whatnot. Um, with regard to actually buying my work, you can get it from all bookshops, really. But um, if Amazon is the best place as a central hub if you search for my name, Lex H Jones, because they have all the books in one place, whereas a bookshop might have two of my books but not the other ones or, or whatever. So if you wanted to get a complete list of the stuff that I've done – Amazon is the best place for that. But what you might want to do, which I, I totally understand the, the impetus for this, you might want to find it on there and then buy it from a smaller bookshop. <laughs> I, I totally understand that. I do that myself with people. But um, Amazon is a good place to sort of find them all together if you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you try to always support the smaller shops. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's been so important. But Lex, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your out of your day to, to come and chat with me. I had a, a, just a total blast. Me too. That was really nice. Thank you. I, I often struggle with things like this, uh, as I talked to you about before we did the call, like, because I don't know how much to say or not say. And, and it's this social cue stuff again, I, I struggle with that. But you've made this really comfortable and friendly, and it's just felt like having a conversation with someone. I've, I've really appreciated that. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's my goal is just to listen to people having a chat and just having a good time. So it's, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely was that. Thank you. Awesome. So thanks again for coming by and let's do it again sometime whenever you, uh, you want to come back and we'll talk about movies or comics or anything else. Just let me know. And we'll, uh, we'll make it happen. Yeah, that would be great. That would be really nice. Thank you. Yeah. So thanks again and uh, have a good day. You too. Thank you.